Hey kids, Mandy here, and I wanted to personally invite you to join me for Cincinnati Song Initiative's first ever Fellowship of the Song, happening May 20th through 25th. In addition to a week full of amazing concerts, song workshops, and classes, I'll be leading some seriously fun study events on heartwarming topics such as murder ballads and exploring death through music and poetry. Should be a great time! (laughs) You can participate as an auditor, whether you come to Cincinnati in person or join remotely from your comfiest couch. And the best part is that all the week's events will be recorded for unlimited viewing through June 26th. So, what are you waiting for? Head to cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash audit to learn more about this groundbreaking new program for song. And I hope to see you in person or online. Okay, kids, listen up. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to tell you we had a teeny weeny little bit of a technical snafu this month. I accidentally recorded my audio using my laptop microphone instead of the fancy expensive microphone that I had set up. So while the same great content you love in Follow the Leader is there, the high quality audio to which you are all accustomed is not. My deepest apologies, but on with the show. to Follow the Leader with me, your host, Mandy madrid Sigich. If you are a fan of the podcast, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And remember, if you like what we are doing in the podcast, please tell your friends. And if you don't, then tell your enemies, because as I like to say, any publicity is good publicity. Pakistani soprano Mimi Dalton is fast developing a reputation for her vividly human performances. Based in Germany since 2020, her work in opera and song takes her across the UK and Europe, with appearances in the 2022-23 season at the Royal Opera House Lindbury Theatre, Sommer in Stuttgart, London South Bank Centre, and the Bamberger Symphoniker. She won second prize at the 2021 John Cage Interpretation Awards and was a finalist in the vocal section of the 2022 Royal Overseas League Annual Music Competition. Mimi is actively involved in commissioning and developing new work. She has developed new opera with Mahogany Opera, the Royal Opera, Snake Maltings, and the Birmingham Opera Company, and she is currently developing new songs with Rasmus Zwicky and Michael Finnessy to be premiered at Spitalfields Music in 2023. Mimi is also a graduate student of the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which is how I know her. Kids, I could not be more excited to have Mimi with us here on Follow the Leader today. Mimi, welcome. Thank you, Mandy, and hello. I'm also really happy to be here. Uh, so uh, how, did, how did I do with reading all those things? Was there anything I needed to correct? <laughs> uh, no, it was all great, I think. Okay, cool. Um, So you have been very busy since last we met. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to? Yeah, so I moved country since I last saw Mandy and having lived my whole life in the UK, I moved to Stuttgart in Germany in the autumn of 2020. And I did this because of Brexit and it 
kind of felt like my last chance to get out of the UK before the deadline of the 31st of December and get a visa. And so I moved here with no plan and not very many friends or professional contacts. And I've been making it up as I go along ever since then. Uh, with the pandemic and everything else in between. It's been really interesting. So I have to say, I have loved you as a performer, a musician, and just overall human since the very first moment I heard you sing. <laughs> I think I remember your first, like the first moment I remember Mimi Dalton as like a figure. I remember you were you were singing with Dylan. It was a performance at the Guildhall School. And I think you were doing some Schoenberg. Um, Oh, yeah, the Schoenberg Brettel leader, the cabaret songs, they're amazing. Yes. Yeah. yes. And I remember thinking that your performance was so committed and clearly intentioned. I knew I just, I had to work with you. Well, you actually introduced me to the song we're working on today, if you remember. That is right. You are so right. Wait, did we, did we work on it together? Yeah, we performed it together in your leader series, your like cross-gender concert. Do you, oh, Mandy. Yes. Yes. It was amazing. So Mandy set up this amazing, amazing initiative when we were at the Guildhall to do like Winterreise and Dichterliebe, but with the uh, quotation mark hands, wrong gender of singer. Uh, and it was all about pushing the boundaries and questioning what we are and aren't allowed to do as performers. And I can't believe we're having this conversation in 2023, but there we are. I've actually dreamed since I started this podcast, I've dreamed of having you on. And it just kind of suddenly, for this particular episode, I knew, well, I think actually what set it off was that you had posted um, a recording of you singing Belzatzar on your Instagram and just the light bulb went off and I thought, this is it, this is my moment, I gotta grab her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really it's really perfect timing. And actually it's really nice to uh, kind of six weeks after that performance have come back to Balzatza and I've watched the performance back and had a look at my score and what I've written mm -hmm. on it. Uh, and it's nice to now be talking about it and uh, to dissect it a bit together. Yeah, I'm excited. Great, okay, so let's get into it. So. Um, Listeners, today we are discussing Schumann's Belzatza with the text by Heinrich Heine. Here might be a good time to jump in and give you a real quick overview of the song. Based on the biblical story of Belshazzar's feast, the ballad begins with a mysterious introduction that sets the mood for the story. As the music progresses, it becomes more frenzied, reflecting the wild pandemonium of the feast and the blasphemous words of the king. The scene turns to one of horror as a ghostly hand appears and writes a message on the wall. The song showcases Schumann's virtuosic piano writing and his gift for evoking dramatic moods and vivid imagery through music. So Mimi, you performed Belzatza, as you said, as part of your competition rep for the Das Lied competition. I wonder if you could tell us, before we get into the nitty gritty detail and analysis, and we'll talk a bit about Schumann and publication and Heine and the, the poetry and kind of what was going on politically and socially at the time, we'll get into all of that. But I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your experience performing this with the Das Lied competition and why particularly you were drawn to this because it is out of the norm. It's not usual that a, that a soprano is going to program this as part of their rep. Yeah, especially not a soprano with uh, as light a voice as me, but there you are. Uh, so I, I was doing the Das Lied competition with Mary Harris Grewer, who was also at Guildhall with us. She's a fantastic pianist. And this was the first song we rehearsed. You know, we had a list of 30 pieces that we had to prepare for this competition. And this was the one we both wanted to start with because it's 
it's such a fantastic story and it's such a fantastic piece of music. And I think we probably worked for like an hour and a half just on this song. And then we realized that we couldn't um, spend that long on everything else or we'd never finish. Um, <laughs> but uh, what drew me to it, what drew us to it was that it's like a mini opera. And certainly for me as a performer, I'm always looking for the the drama and the the boundaries of what uh, where control lies and where you can where you can almost lose control on stage, but not quite. Uh, I think something else that also really interested us is what it means to tell this story, which is very mask as two women. And it was something we grappled with. You know, we rehearsed like over a month for the competition, or maybe over six weeks, and. Uh, we kept coming back to Belzatza and talking about it and saying, why Why are we telling this story? Why is it Why is it relevant? Why is it interesting? Because I didn't want to just walk on stage and pretend to be a bloke. You know, that's not um, that's not the point. It was it was about how we're common. What's our commentary when we're telling this story? Before we talk much more about it, I wonder if you might read us a translation of the poem so that the listeners know specifically what we're referring to throughout the course of our discussion. I think that that's a really important point. I can send you, I have a Richard Stokes translation unless you have one pulled up there. Uh, I've got one here that I've written actually. So great. Shall we, shall I would we have love a go to with that. It. But if you hate it, we'll go for Richard Stokes, okay? No, great. I would love to hear your translation. Okay. Midnight Druin. Babylon lay in silence. Only above in the king's castle, there flickers, there the sound of the king's followers. There in the king's hall, Belzatsar holds his feast. The knights sat in shimmering rows and emptied their cups of sparkling wine. The cups clink, the men celebrate. This is the sound of the disruptive king's rule. The king's cheeks lit up warm. The wine gave him courage, and this courage blindly pulls him forwards, and he curses God with sinful words, and impudently he curses wildly. The servant's applause roars. The king cries out with proud eyes, and a slave hurries and returns. On his head, he carries many things of gold that were stolen from the temple of Jehovah. And the king seizes with his sinful hand a holy cup filled to the brim and he empties it quickly to the bottom and calls out, foaming at the mouth, Jehovah, I inform you that I am the king of Babylon. Hardly had the awful words sounded and the king was secretly afraid. The piercing laughter stopped at once. It was as still as the grave in the hall. And there on the white wall there appeared like a human hand which wrote on the white wall letters of fire and wrote and faded. The king stared and sat, his knees shaking, deathly pale. The guests sat cold, grey, still uttered no sound. The magician came, but nobody understood the meaning of the flame writing on the wall. Belzatsar was, the same night, murdered by his servants. How was that? I loved it. I, I truly, truly loved your translation. Great. Yeah. So, um, obviously, 
Just from reading the text, it actually does not say whether the narrator is a particular gender. So I wonder how it did come to be that this particular ballad, as Schumann composed it, has only been traditionally sung by men. Um, I think it's slightly a matter of tessitura, uh, but then why don't mezzos and contraltos sing it? And I think there's something about the energy in the middle of the song. It gets very... I suppose you could say macho or uh, rough and wild. And this this isn't the traditional role that the female leader singer has taken. I think there are female characters in opera who are, who are completely wild. And, you know, you, if you had a Zalame singing this, for example, it would be it would be incredible. But what we expect of a leader singer who's going to sing, I don't know, Danusbaum or something mm-hmm. with that pristine quality. Right. That doesn't that doesn't belong in this song, really. Luckily, I don't have that pristine quality. So it was fine. <laughs> So it's perhaps not the you know idea of a proper properly feminine type energy, um, but I think that's personally what kind of really drew me to this um, to include you know in in my program challenging gender norms is simply because I've been told you know one must not do this that makes me want to do that exact thing. Yeah, me too. That's why we chose to put it in the first round of the competition. In all honesty, Mandy, like. Um, we had a we had a very uh, I suppose delicate and refined program prepared, and three days before, I just turned to Mary and I said, "I want to sing Belzatza. I want to open with Belzatza because I'm scared, and this song makes me feel strong. This song makes yes. me feel like I can do anything. So that's why we opened with it. Can you tell us a little bit about what what the feedback was like? It was mixed from the audience. It was really enthusiastic, especially I noticed among the women in the audience, like. The audience in Heidelberg at that competition is so lovely and so supportive. And throughout the day, there were female members of the audience coming up to me and saying how moved they were to hear this song being done by a small woman, you know, like I'm five, <laughs> I'm five foot three. Or do you, do you guys use feet? Or should I... Yes, we do. Yes. OK. Yeah. Or I'm 160 centimetres for the people listening who don't use feet. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, so that was that was great, and then from the from the panelists, and of course this is a competition, so panelists matter. I think some people found it quite aggressive. The energy that I brought to the performance, uh, I should say that that's what I was going for. Maybe there's a conversation to be had about whether we should be aggressive and intimidating on stage as performers. Uh, and <laughs> there were some questions about why we opened with it. People seem to think of it as a concert finisher rather than a concert opener, which really surprised me because. Mm. For me, the first page of the song is like an introduction, you know, it's like when you open the storybook and you say, once upon a time. So yes, that was interesting. Uh, And I think some people respected that I was unafraid to show who I was on stage and some people found it a bit much. And for me, this it was quite funny actually, because a year ago I did another leader competition and I got the exact opposite feedback, which is that I was I was too careful and I was too precise. And I, that's it's really funny because as as a contemporary music performer, these are the two things I'm juggling with all the time. I have to be precise because I want to do justice to what the composer's written, but I also love losing control. And maybe I still need to find the line between the two, or maybe people just need to suck it up and accept what I'm giving them. <laughs> As a performer, when you're finding new aspects of yourself, when you're finding more elements, I think to constantly be um, trying to see new perspectives is a great practice. Mm -hmm. As long as what you're integrating is something that feels authentic to yourself and isn't done purely for 
you know, the reason that, oh, someone else told me I should do it this way, or this is going to make someone else happy. Yeah, I, I look, we're never going to please anyone. Um, we're never going to please anyone. We, we're never going to please <laughs> Uh, that was my that was my um, subconscious speaking we're never going to please everyone and I'd much rather be an artist of integrity who moves a small group of people than the look I'd rather that than have the pressure of trying to be perfect actually all the time it's it's too much and it's not why I'm a musician I look I I want to be I want to do what's on the page I do want to be perfect in that regard Mm -hmm. but um Maybe this will come as I as I get older. I currently, what I'm going to bring on stage isn't always going to be my most contained self. Yes. That's not why I sing. Things like competitions or when you're auditioning, right, it, it is a bit tricky because you are trying to please the panel on some level, right? Um, I know I've previously told you this story where <laughs> I went to audition for um, my the my home university. I had gotten my master's degree there and I wanted to proceed on to the doctoral program. And so in preparation for this audition, I was studying with a teacher who was not my regular teacher because my teacher was on sabbatical and I was trying to make this substitute teacher happy. And he just wanted me to change everything. And so I was changing because I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to get into this program and I changed everything about my playing. And then in the end, uh, not only did I not actually get accepted in that audition, but I also hated how I played. And that was something I simply could not, I just hated living with that feeling of not only did I not please the panel, but I also didn't please myself. And I vowed that I would never do that again because it felt so inauthentic. It's the worst feeling in the world to be rejected for something you're not is so much worse than to be rejected for something you are. If you've, Mm. I feel if I've shown the panel my whole self and it's not for them, I mean, it still hurts, obviously, or rejection hurts, but I can live with that. Whereas if I've gone in and tried to be what I think they want me to be and then they don't want that, all you can think is, would they have liked me? Mm. Right, right. So interesting. So um, as you saying this for the competition, did you feel that you truly embodied what you were intending to on stage? Yes, we got there. I I, I was nervous at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into die Knechte saß and Schimmenden Hein, and it, this is when it gets, the text gets really descriptive and uh, the music gets, I suppose the music has a certain amount of pomp at this stage. And yeah, we were totally, we were totally living it. And I was trying very hard not to, not to look at the panel and think, and start wondering about what they're thinking, because that's the worst thing you can do in a performance. But, it's so hard to do. <laughs> but we, we really came off stage and we felt like we said, what we had to say and watching the recording back, I still feel like I said what I had to say, which was, it was really about making the people listening sit back and question the system. This system, this is why it's the perfect song. It, the the leader world still feels to me as mm. someone who sits on the fringes of it rather than inside it, as a world where men hold an awful lot of power. And Belzatza is also about a uh, rather more extreme example of a man who's totally despotic and has far too much power and it goes to his head. Right. And I I wanted to make them think about that. And I, I hope I made someone think about it. So why don't we talk a bit about Belshazzar uh, as a figure, a historical figure and a mythical figure. What yeah. uh, what was your experience with, with this character? Did, were you aware of him before you worked on this song? Yeah, there's a very famous choral piece in the UK by William Walton called Belshazzar's Feast, which like every choral society does. So I've 
I've had Belshazzar's story like in my life since childhood. It's always been part of the amateur music scene in the UK. Um, and I didn't really go and look into the story properly until I was preparing for this competition. And that was when I found out the kind of myth versus the reality. And the text that Heine has written that Schumann sets is very much based on the myth because actually they didn't find the historical document until 14 years after Schumann wrote this song. So there was no, there was no fact about whether... I mean, Belshazzar wasn't actually the king. This is maybe the most relevant piece of information here. That actually, was something I really wanted to bring up because everyone talks about being him, the, him being the king, but he was actually the regent. His father, the historical figure, his father was the king living in self-imposed exile just yeah. somewhere else for reasons unknown. But And the other thing that's really interesting is that something very similar to the story of Belshazzar happens to his father, Nebuchadnezzar, but in that in that version of the biblical story, he is his father is humbled by God and he he learns his lesson and he's restored to the throne and everything's fine temporarily because this is the Bible. Um, and yeah, I think it's really the the synchronicity, I suppose, of the theme recurring is quite interesting. It might be a good idea for me to jump in and delineate between the historical and mythical figures of Belshazzar. Historical Belshazzar was a Babylonian prince who lived in the 6th century BCE and served as the co-regent of his father, King Nabonidus. Belshazzar was not a king himself as the Bible portrays him, but he was an important figure in the Babylonian royal court. Belshazzar was a capable leader and a military strategist, and he played an important role in defending Babylon from the invading Persians. Belshazzar's true fate is not actually known, though there are three possible outcomes that are often assumed. One, he was either killed by the Babylonians when his city fell, or perhaps killed in an earlier battle. Two, that he was captured and executed. Or three, he might have been exiled. According to the biblical book of Daniel, the mythical Belshazzar hosted a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. During the feast, Belshazzar ordered that the gold and silver vessels that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem be brought out so that he and his guests could drink from them. While they were drinking, a mysterious hand appeared and wrote a message on the wall. Belshazzar was terrified and called for his wise men to interpret the message, but none of them were able to do so. Finally, Daniel was brought before the king and he interpreted the message as a warning that Belshazzar's kingdom would be taken from him and given to the Medes and the Persians. Historians debate the accuracy of the biblical account of Belshazzar's reign, but there is no doubt that his reign marked a significant turning point in the history of the Near East. The fall of Babylon and the rise of Persia had a profound impact on the political and cultural landscape of the region. The story of the handwriting on the wall has inspired countless artists and writers over the centuries and remains a powerful symbol of the transience of power and the consequences of hubris. Okay, back to the conversation. And it's interesting to note, so um, the biblical account of um, Belshazzar he, uh, incorporates Daniel, right? Daniel is the one who can uh, read this this writing that that this hand has appeared and written on the wall. And Daniel exactly. is the one that can interpret it. And actually, Heine completely leaves Daniel out of the story entirely. Yeah. What do you well, think about that? And the text doesn't the text doesn't get translated in the song uh, or in or in the poem, more to the point. 
uh, we we cut off, I suppose, at a very dramatic version in the story. I, I, I'd love to go and ask Heine what, why he did it. And I don't live so far away from where all these poets were. But uh, I think he must have done it for dramatic purposes. It's a really good point to end the story. Uh, and, oh, I don't know. What do you think, Mandy? Well, I partially think the mystery of not having a translation um, is quite nice that this writing appears. We don't know what it means. We only know that later that night, Belshazzar is killed by his own servant. The very servants who were earlier cheering him on and uproariously uh, supporting his blasphemy of Jehovah. It's those same ones that, that end up killing him. Just going to jump in here and say, according to the book of Daniel, the writing on the wall that appeared during Belshazzar's feast read, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. The words were written in Aramaic, a language that was commonly used in the ancient Near East. Daniel was called upon to interpret the meaning of the inscription. He explained that the words were a message from God, warning Belshazzar of his impending downfall. The words had the following meanings. Mene meant, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Uparsin, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The writing on the wall was seen as a supernatural sign of God's judgment, and it was a clear indication that Belshazzar's reign was about to end. It's unknown why Heine left this part of the story out. Why did he not include the translation? Perhaps he thought we didn't need it spelled out, or perhaps it's scarier if no one knows its meaning. One thing we do know was that Heine was known for his critical and often satirical approach to politics and society, and this poem can be seen as a commentary on the abuses of power and the transience of human glory. Heine imagines Belshazzar as a powerful and arrogant ruler. He's a symbol of the excesses and corruption of power, and he suggests that the king's downfall is inevitable. Heine's poem can also be interpreted as a critique of the political and social conditions of his own time. He lived in a period of political unrest and social upheaval in Germany, and his work often reflects his concern for the plight of the poor and marginalized. He was known for his liberal and often controversial views, which frequently criticized the political and religious establishment of his time. He was a vocal supporter of democracy, individual freedom, and social justice, and he used his writing to advocate for these ideals. Overall, Heine's poem about Belshazzar can be seen as a reflection on the human condition, the corrupting influence of power, and the ultimate futility of attempts to cling to fleeting earthly glory. Okay, now back to Mimi. I did want to talk a little bit about the political and societal climate at the times. Heine wrote this. So he had claimed he had written it as early as 1814, but most people think that he actually penned the poem around 1820. Oh. And, you know, around that time, that's when you, there was much about... Um, things being censored and, you know, the aristocracy wanting to keep the status quo and kind of quashing any kind of revolutionary thought. So even if there was some uh, whisper or hint of a revolution or a revolutionary thought in a, in a, in a poem or in, 
in any kind of art, it would be censored. This poem in particular, it highlights the point of the aristocracy meeting its demise. And I think that at the time, so in 1820, people would not have missed that element of the poem. But then later on, when Schumann wrote his composition, things were even more heated. And in 1848, there was, um, that's when the, the French had established their republic. Okay, now real quick, I just wanted to clarify that I am referring to the Second French Republic that was established following the overthrow of King Louis-Philippe during the February Revolution of 1848. The revelation was fueled by widespread social and economic discontent, as well as demands for greater political rights and democracy. And that really inspired a lot of the rest of Europe, the, the working middle classes to rise up and say, hey, this is something that we want. We want this representation as well. And so um, in Germany at the time, there are very many kind of loosely coordinated, like little mini revolutions happening. And, and I think that this poem would have been really, really poignant at that time, that people would have kind of been looking at each other like, hey, you like, we know what this is really talking about. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's also, uh, I think, in a really, like, if we take it to the contemporary context, there's also some kind of commentary here on capitalism, right? On, mm. uh, I mean, the song is, or the text is trying to show that if you value money over religious observance, you're going you're gonna to die. And right. maybe we don't place such importance on religious now, but we still, that placing all your meaning of your life on, on money, on things of material worth is dangerous. Society kind of likes to see the demise of super successful people, right? Like there's this kind Absolutely. of like fascination. Like I'm even thinking of like, uh, what's her name? Elizabeth, um, the Theranos. The Theranos oh, um, I don't know, but I was going to say like Gwyneth Paltrow as well with the ski, um, right. ski court case. Like people are fascinated by it. I don't get it, but right. it is that. It's wanting to see someone who's like the top of the top be taken to pieces. There's something very nasty in human nature that, that enjoys that. <laughs> I don't know what that thing is, but uh, this poem sort of satisfies that uh, inclination. <laughs> we have to consume that kind of content. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So I did a little digging on this topic and found this great article on the Scientific American website titled their pain, our gain, why schadenfreude is best enjoyed in groups. And I want to read you a tiny bit from this article now. There is no English translation for the German word schadenfreude, that small private rush of glee in response to someone else's misfortune. But everyone recognizes the emotion, even if he or she might not have a word for it or admit to feeling it. Tabloids have long relied on people's fascination with public figures. And in recent years, schadenfreude has become a primetime staple, with models, boyfriends, parents, overweight people, and recovering addicts, among others, routinely humiliated on cable television. Scientists who study schadenfreude are learning that this secret happiness at another person's loss has biological underpinnings. The feeling registers in the brain as a distinct form of pleasure, a satisfaction comparable to that of eating a good meal. From an evolutionary standpoint, schadenfreude makes a lot of sense. The world is a competitive place, and an individual benefits, for instance, when a sexual competitor breaks a leg or a hunting rival falls ill. 
Anytime someone suffers a misfortune, that's an opportunity, says social psychologist Richard H. Smith of the University of Kentucky. Life is essentially relativistic. Others' misfortunes are good for the self. Most of the psychological research has focused on the schadenfreude that people feel toward individuals, such as when a girl who dissed you in high school goes through a nasty high-profile divorce. But a few investigators are beginning to explore how schadenfreude plays out between rival groups, such as nations, political parties, or sports teams. They are finding that such intergroup schadenfreude can be even more potent and insidious than individual schadenfreude. It may, in fact, be the first step toward more malicious group interactions, driving deep-seated prejudices that can ultimately lead to violence. Yikes! <laughs> that article was really interesting, so I'll link to it in the show notes for you all to read. Now, back to Belzatzar. So, look, why don't we talk a little bit about Schumann? Schumann actually composed Belzatzar in 1840. Most people think that it was just the second song composed during 1840, which as leader lovers will know is Schumann's great year of song. And what's remarkable about this particular lead about Belzatzar is that even though it's one of his very earliest attempts at the genre, and in fact, I think might even be his first ballad attempt, it seems to be a fully kind of fleshed out thing, right? This yeah. doesn't seem like the workings of someone who's just trying to figure out how to write a song. I mean, I kind of think that's why, maybe that's why it's so fantastic because it does it does break a few rules, right? Of what a song is meant to be like. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's because, I don't know, Schumann was still quite free. And I imagine that as his output increased in intensity through the year, you, you get into, I mean, look, Schumann's song repertoire is really varied and amazing but you do get into certain structures that that you know work, that are reliable and consistent, right? right? So much of the output of 1840 is really romantic, right? Because it was the the year of of Clara. And this song is so nothing to do with any of that. And I think that's fantastic. (laughs) You know, at the time, it was quite regular on, on concert programs. Concert programs were much different than they are today. It was quite customary for individual arias to be like pulled and performed as you know part of the concert rep so you might have an aria here an aria there between perhaps a trio and then maybe you would hear two movements of a or something like that so a lot of them were sort of a potpourri of different things and there was a real taste for overtly dramatic concert style arias and that's what this is hi Me again, real quick. I know this is not an aria. I just wanted to clarify this song is elite, realized in grand dramatic form, much like an aria. So it was satisfying, not only that need, because keep in mind, Schumann in particular was very conscious of wanting to become famous. He wanted to become well-known. So he wanted to write things that would get programmed. So this had uh, all of the details that would be sought after. It just had the characteristics of something that people would want to program on those types of programs. But then also keep in mind that this was the era of, you know, the salon and people gathering within their houses to perform for each other. I forget who it was that called them 
liebhabers, songs suitable for liebhabers, right? For 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 amateurs. Yeah, but this is also the perfect song for when everyone's had a few too many glasses of wine, you know, like including the performers. I think that exactly. would bring so much more to it. I haven't actually tried doing it drunk yet, but I'm going to go and do that. <laughs> wait, wait, when you do, you must record it and send it to me. <laughs> I will, I promise. Yeah, I'll put it on my Instagram as well. I, I imagine just the wine sloshing about. <laughs> yeah, and like trying even harder to chest the top G than I already did because, you know, that's, it's not something that my voice can do. But uh, yeah, oh, that's great. I'm going to go and do that. So um, on the point of publication, actually, I love this little story because it's a, it's a little bit of drama. So, uh, you know, the great publisher, C.F. Peters, the Peters we all know and love. Uh, so Carl Siegel was an employee of the publisher C.F. Peters. And uh, for one reason or another, he decided to set up a separate publishing company. He secretly wrote to Schumann asking for some compositions to print. And this was, I think, in 1846. Okay. Um, right. So it was about six years after Schumann wrote it, and uh, he wanted songs specifically. Oh, it was uh, it was um, it was Carl Siegel that said he wanted songs specifically suited for Liebhaber for amateurs. I see. And, right. And so he asked. I think he asked for maybe a voice and piano, or maybe some piano solos as well. He wanted two different works, and Schumann sent him originally sent him some organ works and and Siegel said no 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 that, that's not what I'm talking about and then when Schumann replied with a second set um, of works to be published Belzatar was one of them and that it was exactly the kind of work that Siegel wanted to yeah to I mean publish. Siegel must have known some very good amateur pianists because the piano <laughs> part in this song is fiendishly difficult well that is true <laughs> <laughs> or maybe maybe they didn't play such important on getting it right. Well, I also think um, that it was I don't know you know more people took piano in those. We didn't have TikTok. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't. We couldn't always constantly just be passive consumers. Yes. If we wanted to hear music, we had to participate in it. Yeah, in I mean, I, I I'm not very good at the piano, but when I when I'm doing song, when I'm doing leader, I try to I try to learn things so that I can I can play them for myself. Because this was also part of the culture at the time, right? That there was quite a lot of people playing for themselves and performing like that. But I, I have to admit, Bazatza is one I've never, never mastered. <laughs> well, you are right that it is, uh, it is a challenging piano part, and Mary plays it so beautiful, just spectacularly in your recording. Um, I can't wait for my listeners to hear her in a little I bit. Know. The brilliance and the vigor, it's all there. This is not just a pianist playing the notes to accompany the singer. This is a pianist of an equal partnership um, role. And it's really exhilarating to hear her play. Yeah, and look, Mary and I have been friends since oh, 2015, which is when we when we all started Guildhall together. And to, to be able to make music at this level with people you've known that long is something really special and to never be taken for granted. So I wonder if there you have any specific moments within the music, anything about the music in particular that you would like to call attention, our listeners' attention to. Uh, okay, I'm not going to go in chronological order if that's okay. That's totally because I have to start with the best bit of the song, which is when Balzatza says this terrible thing, Jehovah, der Kündisch auf ewig hohen, ich bin der König von Babylon, I am the king of Babylon. And look, it's it's incredibly satisfying to sing. Uh, actually, it was quite interesting in the feedback. One, of, I, I kind of, you'll hear on the recording, I put on a slightly different voice 
to be Balzatza. And one of the panelists didn't didn't agree with my decision to do that. She said everything should be in my voice. So this is a this is an interesting interesting thing about leader performance, I think. But look, it's uh, it's the only moment I think I'm just speeding through my score. It's the only moment till the end of the song that that the piano really stops and there's just mm. space for the vocalist to, I suppose, take control of tempo, but also, uh, yeah, take control of the dramatic impulse and really lead it and give those words the weight that they need and that they deserve. And then from that, we descend into this kind of devilish stew of... <laughs> uh, I, can't, I, can't, I can't sing the piano part as well as not being able to play it. Uh, well, I don't see why not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. Okay, so that bit sounds like this. too much you know that one of the <laughs> critiques was that it was a bit much for the stage I mean if that's not a point to give too much to being in quotes I like I don't know what I don't know when what are you saving it for if you're not going to give it all there like what are we what are you saving it for yeah I mean look one day Mandy you and I will do a podcast about men who've told women they're too much right <laughs> probably not something to go into now because we'll be here for hours <laughs> But yeah, you're right. If this if this isn't the song to be too much, then what is? <laughs> also, um, just before the just before Balzatza decides he's going to call his servant to bring all the gold in, there's this fantastic piano moment. Da 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 da. I mean, you have to sing, and you have to sing it that badly as well, otherwise it's not. <laughs> Yes. And like in rehearsals, I'll be there like head banging and dancing. It's that kind of music. It's head banging music. That's what you want, right? <laughs> this is a very cinematic song, I think. And yes. That first, the first page, which for your listeners is from Die Mitternacht zog näher schon to uh, Balsatzer hielt sein Königsmal. In this first page, it's like um, you start with the wide angle image. So it's very foggy and there's a castle in the distance, but there's no details. Maybe there's like some spooky birds flying. And you can see right. the shadows. And then suddenly, suddenly the camera just zooms in and you're in the hall with the people and the lights and you can like smell it yes i have the exact same thing written down (laughs) in my notes the exact zooming in and suddenly you're in the hall and there's absolute pandemonium yeah and how often how often does music do that to you really i mean it's and this was written in 1840 like that's that's remarkable in my opinion. It's so contemporary. Yes. The beginning is incredibly contained and you don't know what judgment the narrator is going to pass on the events that are occurring until halfway through the second page of the song when Heine writes, dem sturigen Königerich, the disruptive king's rule. You know, until then, this could have been like a nice party. Maybe the totally. music doesn't say nice party, but it could, 
it could evolve from the suspense it could evolve into like you know disco ball and lights and other right right but it doesn't i love this beginning maybe more than any other beginning of anything ever because it begins with this incredibly mysterious and spooky ninth chord and we're not really sure what our tempo is because as it begins it actually changes tempo we start in this kind of no man's land of tempo and and actually graham johnson every now and then he has a really really great way of putting things absolutely and i've also got graham written down for this bit of the song okay so you probably are going to you probably are referring to the same thing so my um my little blurb that I pulled out from his descriptive musings on the beginning uh, go thusly. The trick in musical performance is not to play one's trump card too soon. The semi-quavers which open Belzatzar can be made to rush past, but they can also be made to spread slowly across the stave, like a thick blanket of chromatic fog, an opaque mist of evil as if even a mention of Babylon were enough to summon images of a dangerous place, devious and depraved. Yeah, that's exactly what I've written down. In the song, we will hear that portrayed thusly. of this song because um its haters will say that there are a few things wrong with the song oh well they can go to hell sorry (laughs) i love it um yeah so there's actually been some critique about how um there are too many ideas Uh, schumann was too much for the song apparently according to his critics (laughs) (laughs) that there are too many ideas and they don't get fully fleshed out and it would have been better if he had taken maybe just one or two of them and developed it throughout throughout the piece but I really like the word that you use. You you said that it was cinematic, and and I feel that um, that approach to if we had just had one of these elements, so say we just had the mystery, or say we just had the raucous sort of pompous pandemonium, or say we just had the ending where it's super haunting and leaves us just like with the ghosts. Uh, yeah. I, I think it, that would not have been enough for this song. No, it, no. I mean, this uh, this is what I said right at the beginning of the episode. This song is like a whole opera in itself. Yes. And to be able to bring an opera into five minutes is a real skill. Right. And it all it's not like it doesn't musically fit together, you know? I do want to read this little um, 
critique. This is from a book by Stephen Walsh, and he says this. Um, his critique is that it displays alongside some memorable music almost every fault that stood between Schumann and satisfactory vocal composition on a large scale. The voice part is thoroughly four square, and although it makes a reasonably grateful and characteristic line to sing, it leaves little impression on the memory. I just don't believe that. The mm. piano music, on the other hand, is consistently exciting and atmospheric until required to characterize actual evil behavior. The orgiastic drinking of the vassals, Belshazzar's blasphemy, or at the end, his murder, when it lapses impotently into block chords and conventional rhetoric. No, 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 no. <laughs> God, I, I could not have sounded more English when I said that. But like all the suspense, okay, not all the suspense, 85% of the suspense in this song comes from the piano, right? Mm. Yes, like, yes. It's essential to the drama. And uh, I'm just looking now at uh, the text und sie, und sie, and vice avant, uh, which is when the writing appears on the wall. Yes. Uh, James Bond fans don't get too excited, you know. Uh, and in the left, in the left hand of the piano, you have that ascending, kind of almost Jaws motif, you know. Mm, yes. Uh, semi rising semitones, really low in the piano. Yes. And all I'm doing is singing some A flats and some Gs. Everything there, everything there is in the piano. And that sounds like this. Und sieh, und sieh an weißer Wand, da kam sie vor die Menschenhand und schrieb, und schrieb an weißer Wand, Buchstaben von Feuer und schrieb und schwand. I never even thought about that, um, that left-hand part in the piano. I never really even thought about that being Jaws, but you're right, the semitone kind of going up, it does, it has the feeling that, oh, something's coming for us. Yeah, Schumann invented Jaws and then Vorjak actually invented Jaws. <laughs> and, then, and then whoever, was it, is it a John Williams film? Uh, I think it is John Williams. Okay, well, if it's not, sorry to whoever wrote it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but Schumann got there first, I think. He sure did, he sure did. Yeah. And like, I mean, this, uh, the flame writing on the wall is as terrifying as a shark that's about to eat you, right? I mean, I would say it's almost more terrifying because I understand a shark. A shark's just an animal in the natural world Yeah, but that's because you're, you're from a country where there are sharks. To <laughs> 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 me, they're, they're terrifying. <laughs> I mean, listen, when I hear that there's a shark in the waters in Santa Barbara, I don't go in the water, that's for <laughs> sure. But it's... I find it more terrifying, a disembodied hand coming out of nowhere, writing a message on the wall. That, that shit's scary. <laughs> it is, yeah, and it could only happen in the Bible, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic bit of music. It's, it's actually the most challenging bit for me to sing because it goes just into the break between like the middle of my voice and, and my chest voice. And oh, it, took, it took a really long time to find the right color for this. Uh, that you know it's whether to do it with with power and loudly but that wasn't what I wanted to do you want you kind of want your voice to disappear with the writing right and yes. that I found really difficult I could see how that would be and 
On um, the point of just kind of where this sits in your voice, so you don't sing it in the original key, is that that's correct, right? Uh, yeah, I think it 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 is. Yes, uh, so uh, I sing it in the higher voice key, which would be done by tenors uh, and sopranos. Yeah, got it. Okay, it's cool. still quite low. I mean, it, it's a choice. Like it's a choice we definitely have to make as sopranos. Whether when you're on those low notes, whether you go full out and do them in chest voice, which can mm -hmm. be quite raw and like brash. Or whether you do them softly and delicately. And it's it's really nice to have that choice. I mean, sometimes yeah. I try and do the raw and brush stuff higher up and then you have to find the line between it being dangerous and being safe. But I, I look, I'm a person who takes risks. I, I do a lot of contemporary music and I take great pleasure in finding out where the line is and then not quite crossing it. With my voice. I'm not too I'm not too precious about it. I don't I don't like shouting very much, but other than that. So since we're on we're kind of talking about this part of the the song where we're nearing the end and as you said it kind of disappears. As as the music disappears, your voice kind of disappears. And I'm wondering what you know, as you approached the the final two measures. Yeah. You know, we kind of expect maybe some sort of big bombastic ending to to such a a raucous <laughs> um, a piece, but that's not what we get here. No, and look, dramatically, if if the bit before is the hardest bit vocally, this is the hardest bit dramatically to pace and to, to hold the tension. But I think that if I go into Robert Schumann's head, I think the reason he composed it like this is because it wasn't a dramatic murder. They didn't mm. like leap up and stab him as soon as he did it. They waited till he was asleep and then they, you know, they probably drugged his wine and they right. crept into his room mm. and just like slipped a dagger into him. Right. That, that's, it's so underhand. And I think, I think he really does capture that in the music. That has also been one of the critiques that it doesn't have a dramatic ending, but I would actually argue the way it ends is very dramatic in the sense that you're right, it isn't it isn't secret. Because we're expecting something else, I think. Yeah. I think we're almost expecting a different end to this kind of character. And the fact that as you say, it's it's happening in secret and they sneak into the room and then the song's just over. Yeah, it, it you almost thinking, takes my breath away. It leaves you thinking. And what will happen next? Yes. And isn't that a great, great place to leave an audience? I think Schumann accomplished exactly what he meant to accomplish with this piece. And I like that sort of parallel between your performance and and Schumann's um, composition. Um, and I, I really think that that's a great place to leave it. After all this talking, we must surely hear it now. Yeah, 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 maybe.
much for sharing that recording with us. Are there any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Well, I'd firstly just like to say thank you so much for having me on here today. I've really enjoyed catching up and chatting. <laughs> and it's always it's always an immense pleasure to talk about music. Uh, it's really funny because actually it was the thing I found hardest at school was writing about music. You know where you have to like write an essay describing a piece of music. I can't write I can't do that in academic language, but to just sit here and get excited about music for people who I know are going to listen and also be excited about music. That's the best. So thank you. Yes. That's yes, what I want course. to say. <laughs> and, uh, I hope that I hope that people will continue to find music to be excited about. There's always something exciting, you know? I do know because I'm never 
I am never dissatisfied when I open up a piece of music or I go to a concert. I'm never dissatisfied with having done that thing. You know, there's oh. always something new to pique my interest. You could you could never consume enough. And, I mean, it's uh, literally it's literally what I live for. And this is this is a problem because like it's my job, but it's also my absolute hobby and passion. Uh, and then there's no no boundaries in my life. But, but <laughs> well, that's that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's totally life affirming when it's yes. really when it's this good. So once again, Mimi, I can't thank you enough for being here, and um, I just wish you all the best. You must keep us updated on your travelings and your musings. Can you tell my listeners on where to find you on the socials? Yeah. So on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, I am just. Mimi Dalton, like at Mimi Dalton or forward slash Mimi Dalton. And if you want to listen to my podcast, if trains are also your thing, uh, <laughs> although I have now diversified into buses as well, uh, my podcast is called High Flyer, uh, F-L-I-E-R. Enjoy it. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much. There, there may be a very small subset of listeners uh, of Follow the Leader who have a deep interest <laughs> in trains and leader. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's me. Uh, can, can you introduce, uh, if, you, if you love leader and trains, please get in touch because I want to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I'll see you next time, Mimi. Bye. Thank you, Mandy. Bye. Well, kids, that's all for today. Remember that Follow the Leader can be found in all the usual podcasty places. And please, if you like what you hear, leave a review. It's truly the best way you can support the podcast. Follow the Leader is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at leadernerd. That's at L-I-E-D-E-R-N-E-R-D. See you later, nerds! If you love this podcast, then you'll love the Song Cycle podcast, also by Cincinnati Song Initiative. Song Cycle introduces the coolest and awesomest leaders of the song world today and dives into getting to know them and their unique stories, where they think song in the 21st century is headed, and lots of other great topics. If you're looking for your next source of inspiration as you continue on your own musical journey as a song lover, look no further than Song Cycle with me, your host, Sam Martin. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation.